Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Quick question. Have any of you turn on your television sets as of late? I don't know about you, but every time I turn on the TV, I see a commercial for a new prescription drug. So much so that we're seeing them that my kids are singing the songs when they come on. Right? But there's lots of them, right? And I got to tell you, when I watch most of those commercials, the required disclaimers make it seem to me like the cure is often worse than the disease. Um, you know, I, I watched those, and even when I was sick back in January and February, really sick. And I was kind of zoning out watching the TV, and these commercials would come on. And when I watched them, I thought, I have that. I need that. But again, myself not ever taking medication very often, anything triggers me like you wouldn't believe, which is probably why I was so sick, because they couldn't figure out what to put me on. But anyways, but when I watch those, I kind of laugh. And I laugh even more when my kids start singing the tunes to these songs. But it shows you how it gets to you, right? And what a surprise that a sleeping pill would make you more drowsy than before you took it. Now, I could probably live with that, but walking, eating, driving in my sleep and not remembering it, or having my tongue or throat swell up so bad that I might die, might be risks that I'm not exactly willing to take. And I think I'll just be tired once in a while instead of taking those pills. But you see this morning, when it comes to the cure that Jesus offers for our spiritual sickness, the cure is not just adequate to cure the disease, it actually does much better. And that is why we concluded last week that the cure for those who are in Jesus by faith is much more powerful than the curse for those who are in Adam by nature. And now this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and open them to that passage. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And once again, before we go through that passage, I need to briefly remind you of the structure of that passage. So before I even get into the sermon this morning, we need to preface it and let you know what's going on here. You see, Paul begins his train of thought in verse 12, and then he does, as he often does, takes a moment to explain something in that verse before he picks it up with his main uh, train of thought once again. Now, he does that, and then he continues that thought in verse 18, and we'll read through that shortly. But with that structure in mind, follow along with me as we read in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, verses 13 through 17 we're going to read those as well. But these are Paul's explanation of what he just wrote in verse 12. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one, of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So now in verse 18, we pick up where Paul's main teaching begins once again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the, man, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness. Now, as we have traveled through the book of Romans, we have seen two extremes here. The first is that Paul talks, goes to the negative extreme, so to speak, and he's taken us through dark valleys, he's taken us through human depravity, he's taken us basically into the gutter of the fallen world, and he has explained no matter who we are, whether we are Jew or Gentile, we have all sinned. Amen? We have all sinned. But he has also shown us another extreme, and this time a positive one, by taking us to the mountaintops of God's grace and love towards us in Christ. Pointing to God's atoning work upon the cross as a result of that work, many are able to be reconciled. We're able to become right with God and enter into those marvelous benefits that are provided by God. Christians are beneficiaries of Christ's work. We were once alienated, now we are reconciled to God. Paul writes as a beneficiary as he includes himself as one who has been adopted into a new family as he writes in the first person plural. Paul wants us now to understand that our salvation is not only one of forgiveness, but it's also one which gives us a radical new position and a new standing before God in and through Christ. You follow me so far? That's okay. I don't see any hands. That's okay. It was Winston Churchill who once said, so many owe so much to so few. But in the case of the gospel of Christ, the scripture says so many owe so much to just one person, 
Jesus Christ. So no doubt people are asking, how can the death of one man atone for so many? Well, Paul uses the following verses, 12 through 21 here, to give us an analogy between Adam and Christ. By contrasting them, he demonstrates the principle that many can be affected for good or bad by the one's person or the person's actions. In other words, we have the choice. How God responds to us depends upon us. Whether we go good, whether we go bad. We had a long debate at youth camp about free will. Because we all love talking about free will, right? We never get to the bottom of it. But the bottom of it really is, is we believe it because we are called to do so. We believe because of our faith. We do not believe because of works. We believe by faith in Jesus Christ alone we are saved. Amen? That's the point. So while people are asking, how can the death of one man atone for so many? It is broken down here. Look at verses 12 through 14. When he talks about Adam here, Jesus is introduced, and then Jesus is contrasted. Okay, so Adam and Jesus here are being compared. We have basically seen two families at work in our world. That's what he's alluding to here. We have basically seen two families at work in our world. One is characterized by sin and guilt. And the other is characterized by grace, faith, and eternal life. And this is how this section is tied to the other. He, he basically wants to show us that we have come from our roots, as it were, and how the one affects the many. How it's all possible and how it's come to be. Well, Paul in verses 12 through 21 begins to trace our ancestry. Okay, bear with me. What is the largest ancestry in the world? Does anyone know? So in other words, I'm asking how far can we go back and trace ourselves? Well, online encyclopedia states the longest family tree in the world is that of the Chinese philosopher and educator Confucius. Okay? The tree spans more than 80 generations and includes more than 2 million members. An international effort involving more than 450 branches around the world was started in 1998 and it, it concluded in 2009. And some 1.3 million living members who are scattered around the world today. That's Wikipedia. We know that's not true. We know that's not true because there is a longer and much older family than the tree of Confucius. And it's a family tree which spans every human generation since the beginning of creation. And it can be traced back chronologically through the Bible about 6,000 years. And every human being that has ever been born on this planet, including you and I, belong to this ancestry. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Adam. He was the first father of all humanity. Our ancestry is connected to this historical Adam. Although his name is not mentioned here, it is implied that Paul is talking about Adam, who is the federal head of the human race, if we were to give him a title. 
And all of us, without exception in our humanity, are connected to him. He was the first human being created, and all humans have come from his line ever since. You see, Paul identifies Adam as a historical person and not a myth. If he is, it's not historical when it comes to his whole argument. It collapses as he draws conclusions and contrasts between Adam and Jesus as our representatives. So if Adam is not the father of all humanity, our representative, basically, then our reasoning here as Christians fails. We fail. If the disobedience of one man did not bring the whole down, the whole lot of us down, then it is pointless that we argue that the obedience of one man, Christ as our representative, can save the many. This is where the contrast comes in. To reject a historical Adam is to reject Christianity as a whole. A historical Adam was no embarrassment to the Apostle Paul from verses 12, 14, and then later on in 1 Corinthians. Jesus believed in a historical Adam. We've read that in the beginning since the Creator formed us. Our ancestry is not connected to ape. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say that. Our ancestry is not connected to a gorilla. It is not. If you are a Christian and you believe in evolution, then you need to seriously reconsider your thinking. Because if evolution is right, then Adam is not what the Bible says he is. And if that is true, then Jesus is not who he says he is. We go on to believe in Jesus because Jesus himself believed in this. The doctrine of original sin, covenant theology, and how God deals with us as humanity through those covenants, having someone to represent man in a covenant, we know that it was first Adam, second Christ. Accommodating evolution in your Christian faith is really a horrible position because it falls down. It holds no merit. Because you're saying that if your ancestor was not Adam but ape, and that's not biblical because the Bible doesn't say that we evolved from some lower life form or animal, but it says that we were created in the image of God. In the beginning, the image of God. Period. Evolution teaches this earth is that it's billions of years old and that dinosaurs roamed this planet long before humans and there was a major catastrophe and death and bloodshed and disease and then humanity evolved. Here's the theistic evolutionist. He comes along and says then God creates a perfect world on top of all that mess and chaos. Is that a reasonable statement? No, it's not. Why? Because it's not the order of God's creation account. Because God created everything out of nothing. 
Everything this planet, human, animal, according to its kind, and I even mean the dinosaurs, and it was a good, and then sin came into this world. And as a result of the one man, and then death, but not death before Adam. The theory of evolution undermines the historical account of creation and the teaching of Jesus. And I believe that that falls down. And it's a dangerous position to stand upon as a Christian because we are undermining the authority of Scripture. That's what we're doing when we fall into these lies. If Adam's our representative, then we know that also sin and death reigns. Have you ever wondered why there is so much evil in this world? We can't even point the finger either. And so often because we do things we know we are wrong and we regret them. We all mess up. Have you ever wondered why we all face illness and ultimately die? The answer is found right here in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because we've all sinned. It lays it right out there for us. All of us belong to Adam who committed that first sin before God, even though he had the free will to remain obedient. He failed God and he failed himself. And as a result of that death that came at the time of Adam, right up until this present day, sin and death brings separation from God. So in other words, we are all in this together. As human solidarity, we are all in this together. Adam's sin is the cause of the sinful lifestyles and actions we see today in others and in ourselves. His sin is cause of 100% death rate in our world still today. When he sinned, we all sinned. Paul is not conveying this as to why we sin today. That is true, but what he's trying to really convey is that Adam's sin is our sin. Paul is saying that Adam is our representative of the, as a whole of humanity. Unfortunately, we didn't get to choose that. But that's what we're, that, those are the cards that we've been given. Adam's sin is our sin. Adam represented us all, and as a result of that, we have sinned. And biblically, it's seen in the following text. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Levi was in the body of Abraham. Um, and there's many, many other examples. Uh, the, the crucifixion was not just Pilate's work, but ours too. Uh, if we turn away, if we ever turn away, we are crucifying the Lord all over again as Christians. When we don't follow the precepts and the laws that God has laid before us, we're essentially crucifying him once again. Verses 13 and 14, he, he expands this concept of sin as it was always in the world before the law, but sin was not taken into account. So from the time of Adam to Moses, death reigned even though there was no law. People sinned, but there was no law to pronounce them guilty, but yet death reigned. So there were still sinners because death comes 
as a result of sin. They died because when Adam sinned, they all had sinned in Adam too. And so did each and every one of us. So with Adam as our ancestor or our representative, sin and death reign in our life. As a result of one man's account comes sin and death, and as a result of one man's sacrifice comes abundant grace and life in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.22 For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then later on in verse 45, As it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. If Christ is our representative, how much more can we reign in life? Now all these verses contrast that, and it goes on to begin to explain that. And like I said, in verses 12 through 21 here, we get that account. The writer is telling us Christ's death upon the cross has established a new reign in the lives of those who repent and believe. It's kind of our guideline of what it is to be a Christian. We know it's difficult. And like I said last week, if it's not difficult, you're not doing it right. That's just the God's honest truth. We're going to face obstacles. We're going to face things that trip us up. But when God is not front and center in our lives, how much worse is it? There's no hope. But through Christ, we have hope. And we have a reign of righteousness due to that justification he gives us. We know that it was Adam's disobedience to us that constituted us as sinners. But it was Christ's obedience that constituted us as righteous. And his righteousness is now imputed to us. In other words, it's legally reckoned to our account, so to speak. We talked about that accounting system a couple weeks ago. But we have that. That's been given to us. We are justified before God and righteous in his sight. Those who serve time are always ex-cons. You know that term. The authorities will retain a a record, but being justified means in Christ, God no longer has any record at all. Amen, right? Always. So when the devil or someone tries to undermine you standing before God and tells you you're not good enough or why you should not ever be accepted, you need to tell him or her that I know I'm not good enough. I know I'm not good enough. And on my own, I would never make it. But Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. So I am good enough. And so are you. Don't forget that part. So are you. A reign of grace leads to abundant life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We in Christ reign in life in the present. But here's an awesome promise that Christ gives. Eternal life is ours. Eternal life is ours. In this life, in the present, and in the future, and into eternity, a believer is given a second chance at life and to live it to its full potential as a purpose in Christ. We reign over sin and its power. 
Uh, Romans 6.14, sin is no longer our master, but Christ is our master. This is what it means when Paul talks about reigning in life. We need to remind ourselves we are more than conquerors in this life because we are no longer found in Adam, but we are found in Christ. So whatever happened because he was in Christ and the same is, uh, it's true for you and I. If Christ is your representative, we too can reign in life despite our circumstances, no matter what. And so I want to go into the sermon this morning. I want to talk about why the cure is much more powerful than the curse. Why is the cure more powerful than the curse? Firstly, what we don't earn, which is God's grace, is much more powerful than what we do earn, which is death. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Again, you'll note that Paul uses a different term to describe sin than we saw last week in verse 14 where he uses the word transgression. Here he uses the word trespass instead. When we ran across the word earlier in Romans, we determined that it means to fall away. I think Paul uses that particular word here because it's much broader than the idea of a transgression which basically describes us stepping over a line, basically. Here Paul is thinking about the broad impact of Adam's fall, and not just the particular command of God, he disobeyed, and just like we disobey. This reveals so much more about the nature of God. God's ultimate purpose in creating the world was so that we, and what he did, is to display his glory through his grace. That, as we have seen clearly in Romans, does not in any way negates God's justice or his judgment or his wrath. We read about that. But it is against that background of judgment and wrath that God's grace is best seen. Do we understand that? People ask all the time, why is God putting me through this situation? Why am I having to struggle? How often do you think, oh, maybe this is God's opportunity to show me my faith? given me an opportunity to further devote myself to him and realize that I cannot do this on my own. God is good about that. God is good at showing us that we need him. But we're not very good at recognizing that sometimes. We like to do things on our own. We are very independent people. But God has a, a, a good way of tearing us down and showing us our true colors and showing us that we desperately need him. A.W. Tozer, I cannot, he says, God cannot use a man until he completely breaks him down. Period. We cannot be servants of Christ. We cannot be effective for the kingdom until God steps in, breaks us down. The good thing, he builds us right back up. He uses us for his service. God's grace is much more powerful than the guilt that 
result from both my sin nature and your sin nature and our individual sins. Adam's one act of sin brought condemnation to this world and to all men because all are born in Adam. And we have this sin nature counted and imputed to us. But by God's grace, we, which are made available to all, uh, based on that one act of righteousness of Jesus, we are saved. We have been justified. We have been made righteous. So when people ask, how can one man be the Savior for all? Because he is. He just is. We can overcome those feelings of guilt. We can overcome our sin nature, not on our own, but through God's grace. And that grace does even more than that. It also overcomes the guilt that results from our trespasses. Every time we disobey one of God's commandments, we commit a trespass. And we've stressed in this section, we do that as a result of our sin nature. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. Understand that. But the great news here is that God's grace doesn't just justify us and declare us not guilty. It also results in us inheriting that sin nature. So how is it that God declares us not guilty of those individual sins as well? Because God's grace is more powerful than the reign of death. So it transfers us to the reign of eternal life. We know Christ, we know life. We've all seen those saying many times. Adam's sin brought life to an end for all of us. God's grace does not merely replace death with life, though. It transfers us into a completely new realm which we experience eternal life which has both a present and future component. That idea is confirmed here by the verb tenses. When Paul writes that death reigned through one man, the verb reigned is in its arrowist tense which indicates a one-time action that occurred in the past. By the way, that helps to confirm the point we made last week when we are under the reign of death as the result of having Adam's sin nature. So that contrasts with the verb receive, which is in the present tense. And that implies that receiving God's grace into our lives through faith in Jesus contains a present, not a present, but present, continuing component. We experience life right here and now as we continue to receive God's abounding grace into our lives. But see, there's also a future component to the reign of life which is indicated in the verb reign. In the phrase reign in life, which is, which is quoted there at the end of that verse, that verb is in its future tense. Paul is reminding us here of the inheritance he described back in Romans chapter 4 which basically says that we will reign with Jesus in a future physical kingdom. 
So that means the reign of life into which we enter through one man, Jesus, is eternal. We talked about internal and eternal. This is the eternal. And here in this passage, Paul has presented the work of Jesus as the reversal of the work of Adam. God's good at giving you turns. He gives all of us that opportunity. And if you, even if you're sitting there today and you know you need a U-turn, God provides. God provides the way. And he provides the cure. And the cure for that is for those who know Jesus by faith. And they know that it's much more powerful than the curse. Paul summarizes this idea in the last four verses of this chapter. But before we close with those verses, I want to remind ourselves once again that the structure of this passage is of this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He lays that out so we're kind of captivated, right? But then he kind of takes a detour in verses 13 through 17 because that's the kind of guy Paul was. He's that individual that starts a story and then goes off on a tangent for about 30, 40 minutes, and then he comes back to a story. But this is what Paul did. He detours in 13 17 to explain why it is that death spread to all men as a result of the sin of one man and how the act of one man, Jesus, cured and reversed that curse. Now that he's done with that explanation... Paul will close this section of his letter by returning to his original train of thought. It goes like this. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul returns here to the idea that one trespass of Adam brought condemnation and death to all men, but we now know he adds to that by saying we are made righteous by Jesus and he brings justification for all men. So all that past sin has been accounted for and we are separated from it when we find and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we kind of need to pause here for just a moment and clear up a common misconception that can occur if verse 18 is taken out of context. Okay? Paul begins that verse by writing that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now hopefully by now that we all agree that all men here means all men. Since we have consistently shown that we all have Adam's sin nature counted to us. But Paul also uses the phrase all men in the second part of the verse when he writes, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Some have tried to claim that Paul is somehow teaching universal salvation. Uh, by claiming that both times uh, Paul uses the phrase all men, he is actually referring to every person who was ever born. And if this verse were all we had to go on, we might be able to agree with that interpretation. But if we consider this verse in its proper context, 
we find that is not what Paul is teaching here at all. You need to consider the general context of Paul's letter so far. He spent the first four and a half chapters in Romans showing that the only way to be justified before God is through faith. And here in our passage this morning, Paul's main purpose has been to show why that is only possible for the cure to, uh, to, to get rid of the, the curse that we've been given by Adam. One universal sin problem requires a universal cure, but that cure works only for those who accept it. But even if we only had the ten verses that we studied these last two weeks to consider, we could still clearly see that Paul never even considered the idea of universal salvation for all men, regardless of what they do with Jesus. So understand that. In verses 15 through 17, where Paul is writing about the free gift of God's grace, he made it very clear that those who receive that grace are justified by God. We saw that most clearly in verse 17, where we saw that only those who are constantly receiving that grace are transferred from the reign of death to the reign of eternal life. Now, while that gift is offered to all, it is only received and made effective as the cure for the curse of Adam by those who receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. The riches in this passage are nearly inexhaustible, and we've certainly only scratched the surface here today. But let me close by briefly summarizing why this is such good news for all of us. Well, first of all, this reveals that God's love for the sinner is far greater than his hatred of sin. There's no doubt that God takes sin seriously and that he hates sin and therefore he judges and pours out his wrath of sin because it profanes his holiness. Paul certainly hasn't avoided that idea at all in his letters. It's always hard to get through the first four chapters of Romans because it's kind of beating us down. But here we're starting to see the good news of why that is. And see, and God would have been completely just, and he would have been just on giving up on us. And he could have denied us that way to him. But he actually did that with Lucifer and the angels who followed him who rebelled against him. And as a result of that rebellion, God has already condemned them to a permanent place of punishment and torment in the lake of fire with no hope of salvation. He gave them an out too. God provides a way. But the fact that God has provided a way for fallen man to be justified and delivered from that reign of death into that reign of life is absolute proof that his love for all of us who were born with a sin nature is so much greater than his hatred for that sin. We also know that God's grace is exponentially greater than our curse. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul began here with an idea that he had expressed consistently consistently in his letter so far. The law did not make us sinners. It merely took us to a deeper level of sin in which we became transgressors because the law gave us specific standards that we chose to step over. But the good news is that even though the law increased our sin in that sense, 
God's grace abounded all the more. In Greek, the phrase abounded all the more is actually just one Greek verb that literally means superabounded. If we were to try to put this idea into uh, mathematical terms, uh, it would be like, um, like the verb increase as it relates to our trespass would be like the addition and to the verb abounded all the more. So that would be more like a multiplication or probably more like exponential growth, if you can follow that. And what that means is that God's grace doesn't just cancel out our curse on a one-to-one ratio. It completely obliterates it. So what should this passage reveal to you and I? Well, unlike physical disease in our world for which the cure is often worse than the disease, in God's kingdom, the cure is far greater, exponentially greater than the curse which we are all under. God doesn't just want to give you a better life. He wants to radically transform you and live through your life so that we could also offer that cure to others. There are two important truths to this passage and what reveals to me and should reveal to you and help us to determine whether or not we experience that transformed life. First, our identity is found either in Adam or Jesus, but not both. Not both. By nature, we are all born in Adam and we inherit his sin nature that leads to our condemnation, our judgment, and our death. But God has made it possible by the operation of his grace for us to obtain a new identity in which we are in Christ. But we can't live in both these kingdoms at the same time because they are mutually exclusive and completely incompatible. But again, we have that good news. We get to determine our own identity based on what we do with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What we do with it determines. We have that choice. I know sometimes we wish we didn't have that choice, but we do. Because God loves you and because God loves me, he wants us to love him. He will never force us to make that decision. And since genuine love can never be compelled, God lets each of of us make our own choice whether to remain in Adam or to follow to be in Christ. So as we close the study in Romans this morning, I would be remiss if I didn't invite all of us to respond appropriately to what we've learned in these first five chapters in Romans. If there are any of you who are here this morning who are still living in Adam, and if you have never placed your complete faith and trust in Jesus and accepted that justification and that righteousness that he offers to you, based not on anything that you can do, but based on what he has already done for you. I encourage you to identify as yourself in Christ. And if that's the case, my prayer for you is that you don't remain in Adam. You move on in Christ. The cure that Jesus offers is far greater than the curse you are under right now. But also know that he's not going to force you to accept that cure. That's your choice. For the rest of us who are 
in Jesus because we have placed our faith in him, I hope you have a better sense of the great gift that has been bestowed upon us. God's superabounding grace that has been transferred from the reign of death to the reign of eternal life. And so as we pray in just a few seconds here, I want you to express your sincere thankfulness to God that that cure is much greater than that curse. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your love is unfathomable for us. That you were willing to sacrifice it all for the benefit of so many. Let us not forget that sacrifice you've given for us. And Lord, let us not forget that as we choose to follow you in faith. We know that we're going to struggle. We know that we are sinners. We know that there is nothing that we could do or perform in this life that would make us righteous in your eyes. But you sent your son so that we could be justified and that we could be made righteous in your eyes. Lord, I am forever grateful for that. I am thankful that I am forgiven for sins past, present, and future. Thank you that you adhere to your promises, that we can come into covenant with you, knowing that that covenant would never be broken on your end. Lord, I pray that we're able to reset ourselves so that we could be used by you in the way you would have us be used. Lord, I am thankful for the opportunity to be here, to serve with these people, to have a chance at furthering your kingdom, even if it's just for one soul. I feel blessed to be a part of that opportunity. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Dave is going to close us with our benediction this morning. And like I said, if you feel you have not moved on from in Adam to in Christ, this morning is your opportunity. If you do not know who Christ is, I pray that you come today and we introduce you to him. And that he's able to introduce himself to you as well. Don't leave this morning without knowing for sure that you know for sure. And I will be standing here at the close of the service if you have questions or would like to know how you can begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. That would be a privilege to be able to talk with you. And as we go into this new week ahead of us, maybe for some uncertainty awaits, a very simple but a very powerful truth that we can sing now, but we can sing throughout the week. He is Lord. He is Lord, He is Lord, and He is risen from the dead, oh, He is Lord, every
Father, thank you for our time here this morning. I pray as we leave your house that we are afforded those opportunities to be like you, to be in Christ, and to know you is to know peace, is to know love, and is to know life everlasting. Let us be servants to you as we serve and we minister to others as we go through our week. Lord, thank you for our time here together. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.